and uh, we've got a lot of questions. Uh, many of them have come in by email. Um, one of the key questions, there's several instances of this, there's widespread use of marijuana in the adolescent and young adult population right now. What do we recommend to families where there's a, certainly perhaps a genetic risk for psychosis, even if there isn't, and their young person is smoking pot? That's right. So um, we, we know that, indiv- that, that marijuana, for most people who smoke marijuana don't develop a psychotic illness, but there's a certain percent that have this vulnerability. And in those patients, abstinence is key. Yeah. And that's exactly what I told John, actually, was that you are one of the people who probably should not smoke pot. I don't yeah. advocate it generally, but you in particular. This is yeah. a very risky drug. There's, right. There's evidence that some people may actually go on to develop schizophrenia they would not otherwise have gotten had they not been smoking. It's so a it's, threshold it's, issue. It's, it's yeah. something about their vulnerability. Mm. And, you know, today in high schools, there was recently a poll saying that kids believe that cigarette smoking is more dangerous than marijuana. Yeah. So, you know, so that there's this... to the effectiveness of education. <laughs> right. So the education has been very good on the cigarette smoking, and we have to really alert people that, you know, marijuana in many people is manageable, but there's some, well, some groups that it just can't, yeah. they, they can't yeah. smoke. And the other piece is that once someone develops a psychotic illness, even if marijuana contributed to the risk, it's schizophrenia. Yeah. It has the same... Yeah. long-term prognosis. It has the same courses. So once that trigger's been, um, w- w- once that's happened, then... Um, right. You've now identified this is a person at risk. That has, that has schizophrenia. So many of our patients then uh, end up paradoxically using the marijuana as a sort of self-medication, right. and it's a, you know, it's a terrible strategy. Right. But, but I think in people who have frank psychosis, with marijuana use, stopping the marijuana alone is not going to be enough. Yeah. They're going to relapse yeah. without yeah. An, long-term antipsychotics. Um, we've got a, a great question. Um, we, we've talked a lot about Don Veligan's work, mm-hmm. um, CAT and FarmCAT. Um, uh, somebody's pointing out that they personally are aware of the work. Um, others who may not be may benefit from a more thorough discussion of her program. Can we say a little bit more about uh, maybe particularly FarmCAT? I mean, especially because we we got a chance to talk about mm-hmm. this. How could we take that? How could somebody who can't access the actual manual for FarmCAD extract the key principles and teach teach that to their patients? Right, and I think the um, the FarmCAD and the CAT are um, those are distillations of a lot of work and clinical experience over the years about how you can help people manage their medications. And what it really involves is this issue of helping develop strategies for regular medication adherence. Um, And so, uh, you know, and be aware of behavioral strategies. So how does it fit into their life? If you're prescribing them three times a day dosing of a medication, maybe they don't need the three times a day dosing. Maybe if they just took it at bedtime or they took all their pills at once. Maybe if they had a pill box. Maybe if they tied it to brushing their teeth at night. Maybe if there was something they could do in their home to make their home or their environment a less chaotic situation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's not, there's no magic to it, but it is a, it's a real attention to the behaviors. And, and you know, many of us take medications ourselves um, on a regular basis, and it's, you know, it can be very, you know, did I take the pill? Didn't I take the right. pill? you got to have a trick to help you remember. Right. Right. And I usually start with the question, how do you remember to take your medication? Yeah. What strategies so do you, yeah. you yeah. do? How can you be sure? What can we do to, how many times did you forget? I usually assume that people do forget. And I said, in the past month, about how many times did you forget to take your medicine? Mm-hmm. What can we do? Um, people may 
take it regularly at home, but they go on vacation, they forget to take yep. their pills. Right. And then you develop the, 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 the strategies that'll work for them. So you go from where they're at and then move them forward to improving yep. care. I like this idea of, you know, you, you do, a, it's, it's kind of like asking people about their sleep habits. First, mm -hmm. you have to just find out what their sleep habits are and you find out how chaotic is the household. And it may turn out that there is one regular event that's happening every day, maybe it's dinner. Mm -hmm. You know, and you try to build around that. Yeah. And we've even gone to having the plan be that a family member calls them on their cell phone or that they set their cell phone alarm mm -hmm. to go off yeah. with a certain signal to remember yeah. to take your medication. Those tricks work. Yeah. We just, and we know it's really critical, whoever the important people are in their life, whether it's their family or their spouse, if those people are ambivalent about the medications or aren't 100% on board mm -hmm. that this is right, then uh, that's, uh, that's a problem. Yeah. yeah. Um, we've got several questions about how do you switch uh, a patient. There, there are several scenarios. Here's a question about switching a patient to a long-acting versus um, an oral. Can you combine these medications? There were other questions about switching you know, from higher risk to lower risk if you encounter a problem. Can we talk about that for a little bit? Uh, maybe starting with this switching to a long-acting versus oral. I think we, it, the long-actings are different. So, uh, you know, we, we all grew up with long-acting injectable haloperidol and fluvenazine, where you give the injection and within 28 to 40, you know, 48 hours for sure, you've got a peak plasma level. Right. And uh, risk consta is a different Very story. Different. So the overlay, I, I think what I'm seeing a lot of in the residency training programs is people routinely continuing the oral agent for extended periods of time. Uh, you know, a la the transition for uh, Risconsta. Right, for Risconsta. But they're yeah. doing it for oh. decanoate haloperidol. Yeah. So the, you see the guy five weeks out still on 20 Stiff of oral haloperidol <laughs> yeah. and 150 <laughs> right. of decanoate. And they right. can't move because they've got yeah. cogwheel rigidity yeah. in them. So I yeah. think the, the key point there is that the long-acting injectable, if you've gone to a therapeutic dose, 100 milligrams, usually the starting dose for haloperidol, um, you really don't need to be continuing the oral agent for much beyond there. And in fact, you should be anticipating some of these old and unpleasant side effects that can really be a turnoff for right. patients, akathisia, dystonias, mm -hmm. uh, Parkinsonism. So each of these, these drugs vary in when they achieve steady state, and you yeah. have to know that about the drug you're going to use. Yeah. It's, it's different for different drugs. And some, and we've got some new ones coming yeah, out, Yeah, and they'll too. be different for them, yeah. too. So, yeah. so you do yeah. have to, that's a critical piece of information. Yeah. Um, we've also got several questions about exercise. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Point here, regular exercise offers so many benefits. Why bring more meds into the picture? Does exercise not help with medication-induced weight gain? Uh, great point. And it, it does, and it doesn't just help with that. It helps with dis, um, depression as well. Um, exercise is one of the first things I talk about with patients. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that, it's, you know, so the evidence base is clear that people can improve their activity level. Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard. It's a challenge. And yeah. you have to work with them on an individualized basement, basis to see how they can achieve But it, even if you can even in, you introduce 15, 20 minutes mm -hmm. of uh, substantial exercise a few times a week, that actually results in increase in life expectancy. Mm -hmm. It has a, a critical importance for well-being, like sleep. Yeah. Energy. Sleep is huge. Yeah. yeah. And you know, also it affects health. But I think it is, it's an important, what I tell my patients is it's not going to be enough to exercise because if people exercise more, they often eat more. 
yeah. and the body just establishes a, a you know it keeps the same weight or keeps yeah. weigh, weighing. So I really do focus on the need to address. You have to also address the diet. Yeah, yeah. if you if the goal is to lose weight, um, then you've got to restrict calories to some degree and kick in the exercise. I do want to emphasize the sleep point. I mean, mm -hmm. I I have patients who they come in and say, you know, my sleep's acting up again say, are you still walking every day? Right. And invariably the answer is no. Right. You know, I, I some regular exercise. And that's important is that it's very hard to exercise three times a week. It's, mm. you, it needs to be part of their everyday lifestyle, having some true. level of exercise. Yeah. And I'll start people off on five minutes. Okay, can you, for the next you know, two weeks until I see you, when can you go for a five-minute walk? That's walk, two yeah. and a half minutes in one direction and two and a half minutes yeah. back, and, and you build up from there. But, but getting people on board to this idea of physical activity is... Yeah. is I think it's... A, and it for, especially for the early-onset patients, oh, this yeah. is a lifelong skill set that yeah. you're going to be building. Um, here's a question. What's the general thought on using drugs such as ris, uh, risperidone, uh, quetiapine, or lanspine for severe insomnia? Uh, this questioner writes, I've always been very apprehensive with these drugs being used for this unlabeled indication. We should yes. emphasize, of course, that's an unlabeled indication. Comments? Uh, yeah, I'm anxious about it as, as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think that we clinicians need to, of course, start with things where there is, um, you know, a good evidence base that they work and resort to other interventions when um, things become... Um, really difficult, but what's often neglected is just basic sleep hygiene, and we're huge. a huge problem. And yeah. you know, if, if they're drinking their energy drinks at 6 p.m., they're yeah. not going to be sleeping. I don't care what right. pill you give them. It's, I mean, you know, one thing we know about sleep is that just giving sedatives is usually not an effective mm -hmm. long-term strategy. That's right. That Wears really, off after I mean, the first month. You got to ask yourself what's the cause of the sleep problem. Yeah. And I know it's. You know, primary care doctors particularly have short visits, so they may throw a you know medication antipsychotic that's sedating at a patient. But the real issue is, can you get them? Can you learn about what the cause is of their sleep problem and address that, or can you get them to a sleep sleep specialist? There are increasingly people. I mean, do they have sleep apnea? I mean, there are all kinds of yeah. you know mm -hmm. issues where if you get at the cause, you can really make a difference. Yeah, I I'm personally extremely uncomfortable with this idea yes, of antipsychotics for sleep. The, the questioner asks, um, ACT has a tendency to be solely focused on treatment adherence, and it says less goal-oriented. At what point do you step the patient down to a lower level of treatment, more goal-oriented, or can ACT provide both? It can provide both. It, it, it's, it's true. There's been a certain tension amongst consumers in ACT, for instance, because ACT is sometimes seen as punitive or, you know, that you're not taking your meds. So, so therefore you get take your, you know, take your pill. And yeah. it, it doesn't need to, ACT really does not need to be that way. The ACT team can, there are increasingly an interest in having recovery-oriented ACT teams. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I would say mm -hmm. it's not mutually exclusive. There are some people who they may need someone calling them every day to to remember to take it. They just, there may be no other solution um, than ACT, but there, there are others. There is also, it's a controversial area about stepping down from ACT. Um, there are some people believe, oh, it's an ACT lifelong thing, you need it forever. There's other research that shows that really many people, ACT can get them through a difficult time. Yeah, targeted. Mm -hmm. Targeted, right. and then they can learn some skills, learn how, about their illness, how to manage their illness. They can develop a support system in the community. They can develop natural supports, sure. and then they can move down to a lower level. I mean, I think care. that's the idea that, that is you're the going goal. to incorporate right. uh, some of these principles into your daily life. I mean, that's what this, you know, we're attempting to teach. 
Um, here's someone who says um, that they're the training and staff development director at, at their facility. They're having a hard time finding resources for consumers, families, and friends who want to learn and help, help out. Um, they took personally the NAMI family to family course found it very useful mm -hmm. but a bit general yeah. um, they're, they're asking for recommendations um, for someone in their position to steer consumers families friends about diagnoses medications treatments wow. interventions I love schizophrenia.com um, I think that that's a fantastic website it's very well maintained and it provides a huge amount of information and resources so for the web-based um, um, patient and families I steer them there and um, anyway, so that's one of my first and there are other I mean it, it's an excellent question and absolutely I mean what this what we're talking about today is a lot more education with patients and families there are structured programs such as illness management and recovery IMR programs that or other similar programs like that which will come in and will work on educating clinicians managers and family um, there are uh, there are programs for edu educating consumers, meaning patients, such as the Georgia Peer Support Program, which <coughs> is being used around the country, or the uh, NAMI peer-to-peer um, -peer program. Yep. Um, that it's, 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 you know, one of the core parts of recovery, which we didn't talk about too much today, is that the consumers need to drive, the patients need to drive mm -hmm. the system. They need to have a real voice. Yeah. And that may mean having peer support going on, may mean having consumer technicians. Some education about what, you know, educating about what to ask and how to interact with clinicians. Mm -hmm. Illness self-management. I mean, you know, you know and, and also maybe they want to come in and start doing peer support. Maybe they want to start helping other consumers that are in a similar place learn how to engage with the system in a more productive way. In, in a way, I mean, the take-home message to this questioner is there probably isn't a one-size-fits-all guidebook. It, really, mm -hmm. in the same way we were talking about targeted interventions for individual patients, for these different areas, she, she may need to go shopping for some of these different focused kinds of tools. And mm -hmm. when she finds somebody who needs strengthening in one area or another, she can direct them to that. But, but I love her idea of, yeah. of, of yeah. providing resources for families and Absolutely. patients. I think that's, that's tremendously important. Yeah. She should be proud of that. Right on. Um, Good question here. Would, Dr. Werner, would you recommend starting first episode patients on lower dose atypicals? Oh, yes, yes. So we find that patients, the first episode patients, either because they're just a, a full spectrum of the illness, and in the sense that in chronic treatment settings, we tend to see the worst third of schizophrenia. There is another two-thirds that have a mild most to moderate. Of us do our training. most of us do our training, right. And so we think of schizophrenia yeah. as, as that very sort of narrow, severely ill, highly disabled, yeah. disabled group of patients. And when you work with first episode patients, you see the broader spectrum of outcomes. Yeah. So people can have a more mild illness or kind of this, this declining kind of illness or a very severe illness from the get-go. Um, but in general, we start with lower doses because I think especially those people who have just biologically a yeah. more mild illness yeah. um, respond very well and, have, and they're very sensitive to side effects. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, I would just, I mean, I'm sure you can jump in with this too, Alex. I, I, this is really, it's a great question because uh, with families and with uh, patients, um, I, I sometimes struggle clearly more sensitive to side effects mm -hmm. in the first episode. Um, but I've always nervously got my eye on the, uh, the dose range in the clinical trials. Yes. So when somebody uh, really is, um, you know, 
particularly when they're starting to have side effects, uh, let's use as an example, you know, two milligrams of risperidone. Right. The two milligrams of risperidone does not perform well in the clinical trials. Yes. Um, you have somebody who now, you know, um, doesn't tolerate three milligrams of risperidone. I'm worried about right. whether or not they're going to do well in the long haul. This is another instance where mm -hmm. very close monitoring would be right. required. And also in the first episode clinical trials, the doses were um, in the double-blind studies, they were about half. Yeah. So um, in the study I was involved with, it was a milligram and a half was the median mm -hmm. um, dose, um, the modal, mean modal, modal dose, yeah. the dose that was used most frequently. It was very effective. In this particular patient population, not to say that some patients don't need four milligrams, yeah. right, or, yeah. or the equivalent of other drugs. It ties into the, some of the side effects Alex was talking about. I mean, at UCLA, mm -hmm. you know, the great Ted Van Putten, you know, pointed out very early on that patients who, in their early exposures, have an unpleasant experience with right. akathisia, right. this is going to produce a lifelong distaste for medication. Oh, right? oh, yeah, and patients will go, I mean, if you talk to them, they'll say, you know, I remember when I first took this and I got this dystonic, my eyes went, you know what I mean, they, they never forget. Yeah. That. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's important to remember early on that the response in the first episode is often quite good, mm -hmm. that people don't need a lot of meds, they're going to get better most likely, or the symptoms are going to improve substantially, and uh, then they're going to, most people will, despite our best efforts, go off the medications at some point in time because they'll be ambivalent, well, this is just a temporary thing, or maybe this is never going to happen again. And really the worst thing we can do is to is to make them think that medications are harmful in some way to them yeah. or that this is something that they don't want to have available to them should the symptoms get worse or the symptoms right. return. And that's where the dialogue with the clinician is so important. You know, patients may make that decision to go off medications, and it's their decision. They can understand there's a risk of relapse. I still see them. They're yeah. still my patient. Yeah. I, I, we have a relapse monitoring plan, and I've told them that over 90% of people who recover from a first episode will relapse if they stop taking their medication yeah. within two years. Absolutely. You, you, so, so now that they're warned, they have a relapse plan, with the second episode, you have a sec another opportunity potentially to get a person on long-term yeah. maintenance treatment. And, and we should mention that when they come back in for that sep second episode, the average dose required to uh -huh. effectively treat has notched up a bit. And it takes longer for them to get better. Yeah. And they know, and I've, I've told them that, and so yeah. um, all of a sudden we have more credibility as healthcare providers. I've got a great related question here. You're going to love it, uh, Dr. Ming Lao. I'm confused. I thought Dr. Lieberman has data to promote use of antipsychotic agents in the prodrome with respect to neuroprotection. Please comment. Also comment on the time of dosing and impact on efficacy tolerability. Yeah. What's the pharmacology? Right. Um, I so, know you'd like that. Yeah, so, so Dr. Lieberman and I are, have colleagues. We've worked together on Close many research colleagues. studies, yes. yes. And um, he is emphatic about the importance of early intervention when someone becomes psychotic. Yes. He also understands the weak evidence base for what to do in the prodromal stages. And at least the last time I spoke to him, he was also um, advocating for monitoring, for reserving antipsychotics for when a person is psychotic, yeah. but not trying to use these drugs um, in the earliest, um, when people are having these clinical high-risk symptoms, because two-thirds will not develop a and psychotic illness. And this is the distinction we were making earlier. There's great research going on in that prodromal phase, and, and Jeffrey's done some That's of right. it with you, um, but, uh, but, but it's not quite ready for prime time yet. No. And, and it's going to be a tough problem, because we haven't yet I found a great way to identify which of the whole population is going to be that one-third that actually goes on and needs right. it.
I mean, we're in the middle of those studies, and maybe right. in five years we'll come back yeah, and we'll, we'll tell have you what we're yeah. Exactly. Um, here's Dr. Sonder. What's the evidence for clozapine in combination with another antipsychotic? Now, this is more toward treatment-resistant schizophrenia. So we're, we're somewhere a little past the first episode. Things are getting tough. Yeah. Uh, do you see a place for that? Uh, well, I mean, I think the... Uh, with clozapine, so people with clozapine usually come to us with having multiple antipsychotic trials. They'll often be on numerous medications. They'll be on maybe multiple antipsychotics, uh, valproate, something else, and they'll be on all those because none of them are working. Mm -hmm. Typically, that's you know when there's five meds, it's because no med is working well. So the goal uh, when I use clozapine is to first get them on the clozapine safely, and then try to get rid of all these other medications which may be having very little efficacy. Now, if you reach a, and then increase the clozapine, you know, monitor the blood levels, increase the clozapine as tolerated, and if you reach a level of the clozapine that is helping but the patient can't tolerate a higher dose and they still have symptoms, then, in a sense, as far as the research goes, you're on your own. I mean, yeah. there's, mm -hmm. uh, you know... It's a little bit, again, a little bit of research for combinations, but nothing that's and, been And not overwhelmingly um, positive results yeah. either. It's been and quite none of mixed. this is on label. There's not a labeled invocation for combo it's treatments. The, you know, the evidence is mixed, but, you know, at the same time, it may be that taking that person off the clozapine, if they've responded to it, is almost certain to make them worse. Yeah. Yeah. So then you're in a, in a situation where you... You know, you'd be cautious because you can see some pretty substantial side effects with, missing meds with mixing meds with clozapine, but you may have to do it. Right, and, and sometimes the strategy is not so much to get a bigger efficacy bang, but to minimize side effects. There's some mm -hmm. interest mm -hmm. in the addition of aripiprazole to clozapine, again, an off-label approach, but the idea is to lower the weight gain risk of clozapine. Mm -hmm. My worry is uh, aripiprazole is a very uh, high affinity yeah. Uh, D2 ligand, it'll displace most other drugs mm. from the dopamine Including clozapine, which, which is a low affinity yeah. drug. Be, <laughs> so <laughs> some of this may be an effective way to lower your clozapine dose. Right. right, if you're adding things to clozapine, the message, I think, just be cautious. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I, I would also add, I want to point out that there are there's something called cognitive behavioral therapy, mm -hmm. which is an evidence-based practice. Yes. It's in all the guidelines, and almost no one knows about it. And yeah. it's, uh, it's a practice that helps patients deal with persistent symptoms. It is actually possible to use yeah. structured psychotherapy with patients to help them with those symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. And we use that all the time. Enough. We use yeah. it in our program, and it's wonderful. Yeah. And um, so these, all, these other kinds of not only psychotherapy, but um, stress management. You yeah. know, what it, this is a stress-sensitive illness, and we're helping talking people about this manage in the stress. first episode, and we're talking mm -hmm. about this later on when you've, you know, maybe reached as, gotten as far as you can get with mm -hmm. medications. I mean, yeah. the key message is there are additional tools that can help people to manage these symptoms. Well, and also the goal is not to eradicate psychosis. The, the goal, because often the eradication of psychosis requires such high amounts of medication that is toxic. The yeah. goal is to reduce it to levels where people can function. And it's important to remember that severity of psychosis and functioning are not highly correlated. Mm -hmm. That there are people that are quite psychotic that work yeah. at every day, mm -hmm. and there are other people who, with schizophrenia who have no psychosis at all who can't work a whit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and cognitive dysfunction is the big predictor. And, right. Right. and, if we and high doses of medicine. Them, <laughs> yeah, well, and, make the cognition and don't, worse. I guess the message would be don't hold rehabilitation until you've gotten rid of all the symptoms. Yeah. That's right. You know, get started. I, I, don't, I do want to circle back and make sure. I mean, we're talking about maximizing therapy, um, and we've gotten several questions. I'm not sure we've fully addressed them about time of dosing, um, 
you know, with meals, without meals, pharmacology. Right. Can, can we say something well, you about have to, this? Yeah, you have to understand it's, these drugs are so different that you, you have to understand the, the, the pharmacokinetics and the um, yeah. pharmacodynamics of that individual We've drug. We've got agents like Zepracidone. You have to take with meals. Yeah. You have to take with meals, right? You could double your dose and still not get to the plasma level right. that you'll achieve with proper dosing right. with a meal. A patient quits smoking. What's going to happen, right? There's some drugs where there's an interaction, a strong interaction with blood level right. and um, smoking. So it, it's also important to remember that there's, there's not a lot of research to guide us here. The research trials are done usually with dose designs such as BID dosing or something like that. Yeah. And so that's what's in the PDR and that's what the label says. But, you know, many of us as clinicians can tell you that in individual patients, a one-a-day dosing may work just as well. Yeah. Of some meds, not necessarily, you know. Yeah. But, and so it's, um, it, it's important, I think, to really be somewhat flexible um, in the dosing regimen um, and to, you know, again, you, you have to follow the patient. You've got to make sure they're going to respond to it, um, but not to rule out once-a-day dosing because I, I'm a big fan of it. I mean, both for the adherence issues, it's a simpler regimen. The other issue is we were talking about sleep, and this is a patient population where their sleep-wake cycle is so often disrupted. There's not mm -hmm. much of a circadian rhythm left. And mm -hmm. so the idea that you would try to load all those intrinsically sedative agents to bedtime it sounds mm -hmm. like a good idea. And putting it, uh, ha having a BID with a big whopping dose, you know, at 10 in the morning or something <laughs> is a uh, guaranteed nap. Um, let's, they said you talk about leadership support in updating competencies, um, but they're, they're raising the issue that this costs money. Um, healthcare reform hardly supports that. Any, any comments? Topical issue. Right. No and one's shouting, but... Yeah, that's where the whole, the whole burnout thing comes, because we, we have a clinical program that we started, and um, it was really my first exposure to private practice. I worked within this sort of academic setting, and we were basically setting up this private practice that was part, still part of the academic setting, but we, we had to support ourselves, and we can't break even providing these kind of services. We, we, it's just how much money we lose, not do we lose money. And when is it, you know, if I've got a 20-minute time with a patient, when am I doing all this talking and when am I doing the education and who's going to pay for it? So it is a, it is a tremendous burden. It really takes, I think, a dedicated, caring clinician um, because often they're doing this on their own time. Um, that's when they're getting the, you know, it's during their lunch break, that that's when they're yeah. getting the education mm -hmm. and they're providing it for their staff. I mean, you know, they're absolutely right. We've gotten to the point we, uh, where the, where the, even though healthcare spending in our country has gone up, mental health spending has gone down. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason is, you know, it, and it, I understand the issue that, you know, it's, we don't, you know, funds are short, clinics are very, um, tight-staffed, and absolutely those are important issues. I would just say that unless we as clinicians start to talk about these treatments and that they work and that they're important and we want to figure out how to have access to them and to work with the team, the medical director, the administrator, if, you know, if we don't bring these forward, they're going to keep the funding low. They're not mm -hmm. going to, and people aren't going to look. Sometimes under Medicaid, there are options for getting funding for these things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there are ways of working with your department of rehabilitation. They may be able to fund the supported employment. Um, there mm -hmm. may be peer-driven services. Uh, there may be family services that can be brought in. So I, I absolutely agree, but at the same time, I sure hope that we don't give up because at currently we're at such a low funding rate. And, and within our own clinics, we've, we've, we've encouraged our families to be advocates. You know, they want these services. We would like to provide them. So our families have gone to the legislature 
They've yeah. gone to the and, and that's been a very Engaging powerful. Engaging NAMI yeah. is huge, and, yeah. and other effective groups. We're running out of time. Um, this has been great. I do want to emphasize to our audience that we've had uh, you know many more questions than we've been able to answer. The quality of the questions is outstanding. Yeah. I mean, great feedback, great comments. Um, I think it was a you know really good show, and um, obviously there's a lot of interest out there. Uh, you know, and 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 just as we've spoken to, sort of a hunger for uh, tools in this area. Several questions we didn't get to about some of those tools. Uh, we've got stuff, again, on the web page, and uh, we'll try to beef it up. Thanks again. Thank okay. you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you.